Hi, I'm Roberto. In this video, you will see the third and final part of my conversation with Professor James Lamiel, which was about his book from 2019 titled Psychologies, Misuse of Statistics and the Persistent Dismissal of Its Critics. So by now, if you have seen the previous two videos, you probably have a good idea about what the book is about. But this part actually was a bit more personal for, uh, for what Professor Lamiel and I discussed because it talks about the historical developments that led to the occurrence and presence of statisticism, which is what the book is about in psychology, but especially about the story of Professor Lamiel's development as a psychologist and how he ended up writing and yeah, basically researching on this topic. So if you still don't know what this book is about, check my book commentary video check the previous parts of my conversation with Professor Lamiel. And yeah, in the end, I hope you enjoy this last entry of this interview as much as I did. So here we go. Yeah, and uh, I will say that when I started down this road, I did not intend to do history. And I really didn't know much more about William Stern than that he had been influential in the early years of the development of intelligence testing. Beyond that, I didn't know much. When my basic insight that started all of this, when I, as I described in the second chapter of the book, when I was teaching at the University of Illinois, and students were asking me how to interpret correlation coefficients and R-square coefficients with regard to the question of consistency or the inconsistency of individuals in their expression of their personality characteristics. And what was sticking me is that I, couldn't, I could not give them a clear answer. And it really bothered me. And finally, I came to realize that I couldn't give them a clear answer because there wasn't any clear answer. These, what psychologists, personality psychologists, were interpreting as empirical evidence relevant to the question of temporal and trans-situational consistency of individuals uh, was being were being interpreted incorrectly. And <clears throat> That got me to thinking about, um, eventually, uh, the one thing I did know in this domain of historical interest was the so nomothetic ideographic yes. distinction, as it had been drawn, at least in psychology, by Gordon Allport. And my reference to Gordon Allport and fleeting references to the person that he referenced, namely uh, Wilhelm Windelband, the German philosopher, was about all the history that was in there. That was a scant bit. My interest was not primarily in the history, but in, in, in correcting a basic conceptual problem in the field. Uh, personality investigators were interpreting these so-called consistency coefficients in inappropriate ways. And I may have mentioned to you last week that uh, this, this all came out for the first time 
uh, in American Psychologist article that I published in 1981, the American Psychologist. That prompted uh, an invitation from a Belgian scholar who's now deceased, Jean-Pierre Douala, to come to Germany in 1984 and give a presentation at the second European Conference on Personality. Yeah. Um, it was at that conference that I was asked by a German scholar whose name is Lothar Lauchs. He's retired, but he's still active at the University of Bamberg in Germany. Uh, if I knew William Stern, if I knew of William Stern, I said, oh yeah, he's the IQ guy. <laughs> he kind of chuckled at me and so on. And Lauchs it was, and then there were others who encouraged me to look further into Stern's work because he had expressed views and places in his works that these German scholars, people who knew Stern better than I did, no. they knew that Stern had expressed similar views. and They, they were trying to help me. Um, and <clears throat> that was really the beginning of my historical inquiries. But again, as I may have told you last week, if I get to repeating it, tell them about it, I'll stop. Um, I didn't know German then. Yeah, yeah. And so I, I set about learning German. And my first sabbatical was in 1990. And I went to Heidelberg. And by then, I, I, I could, I could kind of read slowly German textbooks with the help of a dictionary right by my side. You know, it was very slow going. But it was there that I started reading things that William Stern had written. And <clears throat> this uh, um, prompted me further to uh, explore Stern's works. And of course, it gave me further uh, uh, motivation to learn German. Yeah. And <clears throat> as I got more comfortable with German. I was able to read more and more of what Stern wrote. And, but knowing some German then opened up other writers for me, like Windelbant. All I knew about Windelbant was what I heard people saying about Windelbant. And so finally I went and I read Windelbant. <laughs> Not what people were saying about Windelbant, but Windelbant. And I discovered in what Bindelbahn actually wrote that it was quite a bit different. He did, of course, introduce the terms nomothetic and ideographic. Yeah. But what he meant by nomothetic was something quite different from the way in which contemporary personality psychologists, including Allport, had come to use the term. And this was like, this is my first, I think, aha historical experience that when you study historical works and do historical work, you give yourself the advantage of finding out things about writers, about literature that turn out to be a bit different from the way they're often presented by others who have their information set in. So with this, I was not only 
anymore a, 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 um, a psychologist with methodological concerns, but I was also becoming a psychologist with philosophical and historical interests. And those interests have informed me every step of the way from the early 1980s until now. And they, and they continue, they continue to inform me. Um, it's quite so. And, and um, an additional feature which has become dimmer and dimmer in at least in our science, and I, I think you'd find this in other sciences as well, though I'm not informed enough about other sciences to say, is a, um, an increasingly narrow concentration on empirical questions. Mm -hmm. And not much of an appreciation, this is certainly true in psychology, not much of an appreciation for conceptual questions. And good science, necessarily raises conceptual questions. There are, there are some questions that cannot be answered by doing an experiment. It can only be answered by careful, critical thought. You don't discover empirically that the Pearson product moment correlation coefficient when it's calculated on variables of individual differences is not interpretable for individuals. That's not an empirical, I didn't do a study and oh my goodness, <laughs> you see what I mean? Yeah, yeah. These, these, these are conceptual questions and in a field that is ever less rewarding of conceptual questions, um, people, many, many workers in the field will avoid them. There's no payoff. I had a senior colleague at the University of Illinois when I was working on that American psychologist paper, which is about all I worked on for two years. I submitted it four times yeah. to the American psychologist before it got accepted. And I had a senior colleague who I say he was looking out for me. And he told, he took me aside and he said, you know, you're, young, you're untenured, you should put that aside and to go do some empirical studies so that you will have enough publications to get tenure when the time comes. And so Roberto, I had to decide, am I going to put this aside and start doing, busy myself in the kind of research that I knew wasn't right for conceptual reasons? Or am I going to keep going with this? And I decided I'm going to keep going with it. And if three, four years down the line, I didn't get tenure, well, I'll take my chances. But I couldn't see myself doing the very sort of work that quietly I was critiquing. <laughs> yeah. So you, you, one really has to struggle that way. And, and, um, I think it's, it's as much or more the case now in the mainstream of the field than even than it was in, in my younger days at the University of Illinois, though by then, and certainly at Illinois, it, it, had, it had taken root. Now, so I didn't get tenure at Illinois. I had to look around for another job. And for me, I ended up 
getting a job at a university where there was a, a lot of appreciation for conceptual work. And so I, I just, I ended up partly by good fortune in a place that would be very nurturant of the kind of work that I was engaged in. And so it worked out. But for a lot of people, it wouldn't. And I often get the, the, the question from people, well, um, how have these false views, these incorrect views, remained in place so firmly over the years? And part of the reason for that, I think, is unchecked uh, false portrayals of the sort to which Stern was subjected. People didn't reach Stern. And although that was it, at the very beginning, in the early 1900s, most scholars in the field, wherever they were, including the US, could read German. But over the years, that has dissipated. And so people are no longer reading Windelbond. They're no longer reading Wundt. They're no longer reading Stern at most they read what people have written about Bund and Wendelbund and Stern. And if, if what's been written about them isn't accurate, but it is widely and uncritically accepted because the people who are accepting it haven't ever read the originals, well, that builds up a kind of a justification for what they're doing um, that becomes ever more difficult uh, to dislodge. So that's, that's part of the problem. And as I went on to graduate school, when I was in graduate school, uh, I was in my research methods classes, I was assigned to read, for example, David Bakken's papers um, that I cite in there. And they hit me, but I can remember this very vividly. I, I, I'm thinking Bakken is saying something is basically wrong with the way in which we do research. But my instructors are not furthering that. Uh, they had me read it, so that's good. And I knew it was out there. But I'm a graduate student, and I don't yet have the guts or even the wherewithal to say, you know, what you're doing there runs against what Bakken is saying. And so I've either got to hear a rebuttal of Bakken's argument, or I'm going to do what Bakken's doing. <laughs> you know, there's, uh, you can't just ignore it. But um, so I applaud my instructors from graduate school days in exposing me to that literature. Uh, but um, it, it, it it wasn't convincing in a way that persuaded me at the beginning to move uh, in to, to conduct myself as a researcher more in accordance with um, Bakken's insights, which were considerable. Yeah. Kerlinger, in 1979, by that time I was done with graduate school, I was at Illinois. I must say, I never, I, I never read that. That, that material that I cited in my 2019 book, I had not 
familiarized myself with before. And so in a sense, that was, that was kind of new for me. And this, this, this um, paradox that he calls, uh, um, uh, troublesome paradox, on, it was, I, I could see eventually that that was the same problem that Bakken was talking about. Interestingly enough, Kurlinger didn't cite Bakken, even though they were talking about the same thing, and he should have, because Kurlinger turned out to be a pretty prominent person in the area of research methods. I don't know if you've run across his name or been assigned his textbooks or whatnot. Maybe, maybe they're not still. I mean, I've been away from it for a while, so I don't know. But he, he had a, a research methods textbook out that went to at least two editions, maybe three editions, and was, was quite successful. So a lot of people were reading that. And um, it, it, just, it just didn't take on. And then when, um, and I mentioned this, I know, last week, and it's in the book, Anne Anastasia and Leona Tyler, the way they, um, looked at Stern's two differential psychology books in ways that fundamentally at odds with what Stern had insisted, that the 1911 book was not to be regarded as a revised or second edition of the 1900 book. He said things in the 1911 book that he had not said in the 1900 book. There's nothing in the 1911 book that undid or contradicted what he said in 1900, but he added additional material that really changed the whole, the whole perspective. And Anastasi and Tyler in their textbooks, which were hugely influential really through most of the 20th century, and people who were taking psychometric theory, test, uh, psychological testing, that kind of thing. They, they ended up essentially buying and perpetrating Stern's circumscription of the, the business of differential psychology as he had described it in 1900. But the 1911 book changed it. Uh, it expanded it is what he actually did. He, he, again, he didn't abandon what he said in 1900, but he, he, he altered, he expanded the field in ways that fundamentally changed the landscape. And it all got ignored by Anastasi, by Tyler, the two biggest, the authors of the two biggest textbooks in the field for throughout the 20th century. When Kurt Pavlik, a German, at the University of Hamburg, where Stern spent the latter half of his, uh, of his academic career, published the facsimile edition of Stern's 1900 book, uh, 1911 book, in 1994, I believe, uh, somewhere around there, 1995. Mm -hmm. He too referred to the 1911 book as a second edition. This, is, this boggles my mind. I mean, I know, or at least if I, if I can believe Anastasi, what she said, she, she read German. And she was aware of both editions, both, both, both of Stern's, they're not editions there, both of Stern's differential psychology texts. 
Leona Tyler writes things in her work that suggest that maybe she didn't read German all that much. So, okay, we cut her a break there. And as I note again in the book, she did um, uh, later in her career, she wrote some unpublished papers in the 1980s mm -hmm. in which she essentially, she chastised herself for having too narrow a view I, of what Sharon had said. I have that quote and I, I, I mm -hmm. uh, yeah, Leona Tyler, right? Right. That's what we're talking about. I have the quote here because mm -hmm. again, uh, I really like that you put not just this, but quite a few examples of these of these changes of thinking or or, or acknowledgements of okay uh, maybe that was not the case or maybe something was not that clear and, and i have the quote from uh, leona tyler here um, mm -hmm. that was because my teaching specialty has been individual differences i have known of stern for a long time paid proper respect to him in historical introductions <laughs> textbooks but never deepened my understanding reading further i realized that i had been giving him credit for just those things he would not have wished to be remembered for and that that i mean i, I think like you said it, it's a good thing this is a good thing to do it is <laughs> like to it, at some point i'm always okay just just to be clear this was like this it was like that but it, it, it talks also about the repercussions or, or about the, the way that uh, thinking in general, but thinking also in a field such as a science uh, and psychology especially, uh, yeah, it's a huge thing that, that somehow uh, one has to always be, should be critical about certain facts or certain, I don't know, traditions or standards, you know, uh, as sometimes is mentioned because yeah, one can easily make assumptions where where maybe things are not so easily uh, exactly so easily taken, right? Exactly so, and I, I tell you, um, well, let me. Uh, I'll come back to Tyler in a moment, but I'll finish off with Public. Yeah, that was stunning because he knows German. He's a native German, yeah. and he was at the very university where. Stern spent half of his career, and still, he characterized those the relationship between those two books by Stern. And I could, I will gently call it incorrect way, uh, and and a harsher word would be false, deliberately false way. But I'll, <laughs> you know. Um, when I was on sabbatical in, in Hamburg in 2004, I was invited to give a guest lecture for the psychology department. And I chose to lecture on William Stern as the origin myth of differential psychology. And that's essentially the, the presentation that I gave in uh, uh, Akron in 19, uh, 2011. Did I send you the link? Yeah, the, the one video? that is recorded, yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, I gave a version of that talk uh, in German uh, at Hamburg in 2004. And Pavlik, of course, was there. I knew he would be. Uh, that's his, like his little domain. And he was not very happy with me. And in the question answer session at the end of the 
first he shot up his hand right away. And he really almost, I could say, berated me because the presentation that I'd given on Stern was, quote, too one-sided. Wow. I'm presenting all this material that I'm betting you 90% of the people in that room never saw. <laughs> and what they've been seeing is this, this Stern, the tester, the differential psychologist, and that's in all the textbooks and it's been going on for years. And Pavlik gets up and tells me that my presentation was too one-sided. I don't know if this particular material is suited for your, your uh, interview uh, tape or not, but anyway, <laughs> that, <laughs> that's, uh, that's the way it went. Now, by contrast, I also had occasion uh, during my years at Georgetown to meet Leona Tyler. I never met Anastasia, but I met Leona Tyler. And she, by this time, this was well into the 80s, and she she's, has already written the passage that you just quoted, and her thinking has begun to change, and she has realized that it has changed in a direction more compatible with the way Stern's thinking uh, developed. And uh, she was a very, very gracious woman, and she was very happy. By this time, she's pretty old. Um, but she was very happy with me for developing my interest in Stern's work and, and trying to um, bring his ideas to the attention of contemporary scholars. So um, I have very high regard for Leona Tyler, um, even though that site of individual differences textbook that she wrote, and it went through many editions, doesn't characterize Stern's view of differential psychology in the, in the way that it should have. At least she came to acknowledge that in a way that Anastasi never did, to my point of view, and I know Kurt Pavlik uh, never did. So those are the three uh, historical figures that, that I talked about in there. Well, I also talked earlier were, were Thorndike and, and uh, um, Münsterberg. Yeah. But when heavyweights in the field adopt these views and they get, they kind of take hold and then generation after generation of students reads these ideas in textbooks. You know, when you pose the question, why is there such this resistance to change? There's such this incorrigibility within the field. That's a lot of inertia. That, that accumulates and it's, it's really tough to, to break down. And the only other thing I would add there is, and I might've mentioned this as well last week, that I've been told on occasions over the years by students and even by professional college professors, for example, one professor at, at Heidelberg, um, the, the students would either say, well, I know you're right, well, what do I do instead? I, I got to get my, my degree. Um, a faculty colleague in Heidelberg told me, he said, I know you're right, but I'm too old to change now. And so he was going <laughs> to keep on going. And he was on, this man was on a mission to pile up publications. He just loved to pile up publications. And uh, so 
it's it's hard to convey these stories gently in in published literature, you know. But but yeah, yeah, yeah. It's and so I kind of try to stay away from them, apart from the bare bones. Um, but this kind of stuff goes on. Yeah, and uh, and it it's part of the true story about how these ideas get so entrenched that it becomes almost impossible to dislodge. Um, he was. Um, he, he went. He was born in 1871 in Berlin, and he went to university at what was then called the University of Berlin, which is now called the Humboldt University of Berlin. Have you ever been to Berlin? Once, yeah. barely for a conference. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> well. The, the main entrance to the Humboldt University is right on the main thoroughfare in the former East Berlin, Unter uh, den mm -hmm. Linden. Um, if you, if, I don't know how, how much of a chance you've got to, to, to acquaint yourself with the city, but um, from the days of my sabbatical in Heidelberg, 1990, up to today, I, I met uh, a gentleman, a native East German, person by the name of Frank Rotka uh, in 1990 and I've remained friends with him for many years and the point here it's given me occasion to go back often to Berlin so I've had the opportunity to be there many times and to really see how the city developed from the time that the wall came down remember that was November of 18 uh, 1989 I was to a Fulbright Scholars Conference in Berlin in March of 1990. Mm -hmm. So we're just talking about a couple of months. And, and uh, East Berlin at that time was still very much East Berlin. Um, and, so, and I've been back, as I say, many, many times over the years and kind of seen it, how it has changed. So that, that's a magnificent thing. Anyway, Stern went to, to college, university. <clears throat> In, in Berlin, um, and uh, one of his major professors there was Hermann Ebbinghaus mm -hmm. of experimental psychology, the memory experiments and all that. But another one of the professors on the faculty there was Wilhelm Dilthey, who issued a, uh, a call for essentially a psychology modeled on Geisteswissenschaft or the, the human sciences, or what we call more often in humanities, or in English, the humanities. I don't know how they're referred to in Spanish. Humanidades, yeah, the same. Humanitas. Yeah, yeah, because uh, human sciences, you know, also in the Spanish uh, academic language, I don't think so. It is, uh, but but I, I was also discussing that topic. I think. In several countries, of course, uh, some people or the, the discussion is ongoing, right? About psychology should be more here or there. So basically, I, I think everybody's struggling, probably because of this kind of <laughs> conceptual lack of conceptual thinking or looking back at what uh, has been told. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, Diltai uh, issued a what's become kind of a famous, well, first it was a speech, then it was a, a, an article or a set of articles calling for uh, psychology on the human science model. Mm -hmm. Ebbinghaus, at the same university on the same faculty, 
published a reply to Diltai's piece and gave a, a fierce defense of psychology on the natural science model. So here's William Stern as a student there at the time, kind of caught between the two of these. Um, apparently, because Stern makes reference a, a couple of places, uh, just very briefly, to the idea that Diltai was a kind of a difficult person. You can imagine the grumpy old German professor, you know, and, and, and when you're a student and you meet someone like, it's kind of, be kind of intimidating. And that was at least perhaps part of the reason that he spent more time with Ebbinghaus. But Ebbinghaus and Diltai represented such two different views of scientific psychology and their Stern's own life and thinking would unfold, it was clear that he was much more compatible with Dilta than with Ebbinghaus. And in his 1927 Selbstdarstellung for the self-portrait, he expresses regret that as a student, he had not been able to take more advantage of his proximity to Dilta. Um, so, uh, and Stern, was never um, a, an antagonistic toward a, a psychology, a part of psychology being modeled on the natural sciences. But he was very wary of, of those with the natural science commitment overreaching, overstepping the proper boundaries and that a psychology, a scientific psychology would have to be would have to include a portion that was modeled more on the humanities or the human sciences. So he had a mixture of, of Ebbinghaus and Diltai. If he were here and you say, all right, Professor Stan, you got to pick one or the other. Which one do you more favor? I'm sure it would be uh, Diltai and, and the human science model. Uh, and I think that becomes even clearer as his, uh, as his career goes along. Um, his, but <clears throat> Ebbinghaus left Berlin in around 1894, 95, to, to, take, uh, to take over the directorship of the Psychology Institute at the University of Breslau, uh, which is now Wroclaw, Poland, but at that time it was Breslau. There was an opening for a young faculty member. Ebbinghaus encouraged Stern to go there, which Stern did in 1897. Um, and uh, so he was once again uh, in close proximity, collegial proximity to Ebbinghaus. Stern, um, uh, the, the first differential psychology textbook appeared in 1900. So he was, had been at Breslau for just a few years, a couple of years, three years. Uh, in 1899, he married uh, uh, Clara Josefi, a sweetheart from Berlin. And they uh, began their married life together then in Breslau. In 1900, their first daughter, their first child was born, his daughter Hilda. And that's when the Stern started keeping these, these 
what came to be called the baby diaries or the child diaries. And this was the basis for his extensive and very rich contributions to what was called at the time child psychology. It would now be called more developmental psychology, but that's what it was. And so this is a whole line of substantial work on Stern's part that the, the people who think of him as the IQ guy would never know. Um, uh, the, the Sterns then had uh, a son, Gunther, uh, in 1902, second daughter Eva in 1904, and they kept diaries on each of those three children from birth to puberty. So this is a tremendous amount of work. Um, and that, as I say, is, is largely the basis for his contributions to developmental psychology, uh, child psychology. Um, and that work continued along with his interest in developmental psych or uh, differential psychology and intelligence testing. Um, in 1915, there came an opening uh, at the University of Hamburg to replace Ernst Moimann, who had set up an educational psychology institute there. But Moimann passed away very suddenly, and Stern applied for the job, was got the job, and they, the family moved then from Breslau to Hamburg in 1916. This is right in the middle of World War I. Yeah. And there was no university there yet, mind you. But Stern believed, properly as it turned out, that the prospects for founding the university were, were good in Hamburg. Um, and thanks in part to his efforts, but some others as well, that happened in 1919. Um, the university uh, was, was uh, established and one of the stipulations by Stern on his taking the job in Hamburg was that when the university came, uh, he would have the opportunity to teach not only psychology but philosophy. He was, he was persuaded, firmly convinced throughout his career that, that psychology and philosophy had to have firm bridges uh, between them. This was essential. On this point, he was in full agreement with Bund, um, who had argued in 1913 in that paper, Psychology Struggle for Existence, that if psychology and philosophy split, this would eventually be very bad for psychology. It would, it would hurt philosophy, as Bund said, but it would be really very, very bad for psychology. And in my opinion, that's exactly what has happened, but that's another story, or at least partly another story. So Stern continued his work. He was doing empirical work in the Psych Institute. He was also doing conceptual, philosophical work, um, uh, completing the second and third uh, volumes of the three-volume set of Person and Thing, which is his exposition of his entire system of thought that he called critical personalism. And so he was, he was very busy, he was very productive, he uh, came to be a person of quite high regard, uh, not only in German psychology, but uh, in, in other places as well, including the United States, 
at the famous 1919 conference at, um, uh, in Massachusetts, in Worcester, Massachusetts, at Holy Cross, famous Holy Cross University, in Worcester, Massachusetts. It was um, organized by G. Stanley Hall. Um, Ebbinghaus had been invited to participate in the conference. However, he died suddenly in 1909, and Stern was asked to, to take his place. And take, so he came to the United States in that 1909 conference. Uh, it, it, I said Holy Cross. It was not Holy Cross. It was Clark University, which is also in Worcester, Massachusetts. I just got the school. And I say that simply to, to, to corroborate the point that Stern had an international reputation. He was invited to conferences in Paris, in Moscow, in, in many, many different places. Um, so he was a big light in, yeah. in psychology in, at that time in the 19th, uh, tw early 20th century. But of course, um, Hitler comes to power uh, on January 29th, 1933. And uh, immediately Stern as a Jew was barred from all contact with students, all entry at the research laboratories. He was essentially cut off from the university. And eventually he became persuaded that um, he and Clara uh, would suffer great physical harm, perhaps even death, if they did not flee Germany. So they did, and for a very brief time, a couple of months, I don't know exactly how long, they were in the Netherlands. Mm -hmm. And he was working on his general psychology text um, that was finally finished up when he was in the Netherlands. And the, the, the press, Nijhoff, it's a Dutch press, uh, agreed not only to publish Stern's book, but to publish it in German, which was quite, quite something. Yeah, and, and so that book, it's a general psychology from a personalistic standpoint, was published in German in 1935. And that year, Stern um, uh, fled with Clara to the United States and accepted a position at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, where a faculty member there by the name of William McDougall had arranged for him to, to have a position. And um, unfortunately, his, the, his best work as a scholar was, was done by then. He didn't accomplish anything of great notable merit while he was at Duke. For one thing, he struggled with the language. He was teaching there. And, and uh, you know, teaching in English was, uh, was a great struggle for him. It must have been very sad for him as well to have lost, to have had to leave Germany and, and all of his yeah. life, his commitments in there. And um, he had a heart attack and died in March of 1938. So he was not quite yet 68 years old. It was about a month before his 68th birthday. Well, hell, I'm 70. You know, so I, I, I love to be honest. I mean, I, for somebody of his uh, career and, and, and uh, let's say intellectual power, let's or effort or work, yeah, it's a shame that uh, it, 
it happens like that, yeah. It is, and, and I've, I've often wondered, um, given the um, claims, for example, that um, were being made, um, the way of thinking that was being espoused by um, first Thorndike and, and, and Munsterberg, but then also Anastasia, I think the first edition of her book, well, it didn't appear until maybe like 1937. It could have been too late. I'm just wondering if Stern had lived longer, if he himself might have been able to correct some of where, what was going off the rails, uh, um, we'll never know. Uh, um, well, he certainly was a very modest person. How do you know? I mean, I, I, uh, sorry, I just want to throw the question out. <laughs> I have uh, read... Um, uh, he has an autobiography, I think, right? He also uh, it's, it's, it's not a complete autobiography. Autobiography. It's a self-presentation, but specifically of the course of his intellectual life. Right. So it's not exactly an autobiography. There is a biography, one, German language, there's no English language biography yet in existence. I've, I've kind of had it as one of my missions to, to do that. Uh, and doing it, would, it looks like it would require me to go to his archives in Jerusalem and spend some time reading some of his private correspondence. The published works, are pretty much accessible, but some of the more private things, notes and perhaps some correspondence um, I could find there. Uh, in any case, the biographer of Stern, whose name is Gerhard Buring, lives in Berlin. Uh, in, his, in his biography, he indicates that, that Stern was a, was a very modest and non-self-assuming man. Uh, the late Werner Deutsch, who was my colleague in Germany, also uh, at, uh, at uh, um, oh, I forget the name of the town now, Jesus sings, uh, Braunschweig. He did some historical inquiry um, with, uh, on, on, on Stern at the Max Planck Institute for Psycholinguistics, which is in Nijmegen. Yeah. He uh, argues this as well. And in addition, there is a book of letters, uh, Stern letters to the philosopher Jonas Kohn um, that was put together and published by Helmut Luck in Germany. And these are personal letters, although it, it, they cover some professional matters as well. And my own judgment reading those letters is that they are written by a person who was, who was very modest and very respectful and, and so on. So that's, that's kind of my answer to your question. Uh, no, I mean, it's, I, the best, I, it's the best I, I have. Uh, and let's yeah. say, yeah. And you, and you think of somebody like J.B. Watson, uh, you know, the behaviorist. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, you know, I don't, I never met him or anything like he died in like 1956. But if you look at some of the stuff he's written, you can just, he's a very bombastic guy. <laughs> and uh, Stern wasn't like that. So yeah. that's, uh, 
that that that's part of it. Uh, Werner Deutsch, it was, um, was speculated in one one of the things he wrote that 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 was part of the reason that that Stern never founded a school. For example, there's no William Stern school side. There's critical personalism, but who talks about that? You know, and um, so I think he was, he tended to be a, a quiet, modest, non self assuming person. Um, yeah, the, the book helps to explain all that, but in, in, in a very concise way, um, I was asked when I gave my series of public lectures in Hamburg, mm -hmm. uh, I don't know if I told you about this, but when I did my sabbatical in Hamburg, I had um, held the Ernst Kassirer guest professorship in the philosophy seminar at the University of Hamburg. And Part of my duty there was to give a series of public lectures, typically one a week, on the life and works of William Stern. And um, this, was, this was something done in tradition of what existed in Hamburg before the university was founded. I told you that before at the beginning, there, when, when Stern went there in 1916, there was no university there, but they did hold what they called a series of public lectures. And so scholars in Hamburg or sometimes scholars coming through Hamburg on their way to other places would be asked to give a lecture. And so there was a tradition of public lectures. And later the philosophy department, contemporary philosophy department in Hamburg came up with a, um, an endowed chair to, to host some person uh, each semester or one semester per year to come to Hamburg and give a series of lectures on this and this and that. And I was asked one year to, to come to Hamburg and, and lecture on Stern, which I did. And I talked about critical personalism. Certainly I must have mentioned it during the very first lecture. And one of the philosophy professors at Hamburg said, what exactly does critical personalism mean? Which I think is part of your question. Yes. <laughs> and the, the shortest answer I know of is this. Stern um, contrasted critical personalism with naive personalism. I'll be back to that. And impersonalism. And what, sir? Impersonalism. I am. Yeah, 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 okay. Impersonalism. <laughs> he was dissatisfied with these two already existing schools of thought for different reasons. Naive personalism is essentially a form of Cartesian dualism. It postulates that there's a, a mind and a body, and they're, they're kind of separate entities, and one influences the other. Stern was of the view, as were many other philosophers over the years, that this dualism is very conceptually unsatisfactory. And so he wanted, an, he wanted a personalism, but he didn't want it to be a naive personalism. And again, I'll come back to that. The other and bigger roadblock in psychology, as far as Stern was concerned, 
was essentially a, a kind of mechanistic impersonalism. There's no person at all. Uh, there is just a collection of parts um, that somehow function together in a highly mechanical way, determine, causally determined to do this and that and the other thing. And um, there, there really isn't any person qua person as such at all. It's just a collection of parts, very mechanical, very impersonal, and he wanted an alternative to that too. So he wanted to frame a critical personalism is one that posits what he called at first a psychophysically neutral entity. That is to say, yeah, it's, you're not constituted, Roberto, from the start by two separate entities, your mind and your body. The person is psychophysically neutral, fundamentally speaking. It's neither mind nor body. It's, 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 a, it's, it's a psychophysically neutral entity. And that when you speak, when you move, when you walk, it's not your mind doing this part and your body doing that part. It's Roberto doing it, you see. <laughs> it's all together. And for analytic purposes, scientific purposes, we can um, discuss components of this psychophysically neutral entity. And there, even there, that, that word is tricky. Um, um, uh, mentalistic aspects and physicalistic aspects. <clears throat> but you're not separate aspects like that from the start. Mm -hmm. in, order for to, for, in order for one to sensibly talk about a person's mind and a person's body, you must first posit the existence of the person. Do you see? Yeah. I can't talk about the person Roberto as a, a, the mental Roberto and the physical Roberto until I have first established the person, the psychophysically ent neutral entity of Roberto, you see? So that psychophysically neutral entity is prior to any meaningful discussion of the parts. And with that, he does away with naive personalism, which says that the person is part mind and part body from the start. And with impersonalism, which says that there's not really any person there to begin with, there's only a machine. Yeah, Studien zur Personenwissenschaft, erster Teil, Personalistik als Wissenschaft. Um, studies in the Science of Persons, part one, Personalistics of Science. I've never seen a part two. Oh, really? <laughs> wow. Yes, and that's that's why I was going to hear as an answer to your question. No, I don't think he did finish. Um, and I, you know, even if the part two had come out, I don't know. I mean, it's not an easy thing to solve. Uh, <laughs> right. I don't think he ever would have rested easy. There'd always be something more to write, you know. Yeah. But. Um, that book, the 1930 book, is uh, uh, 
that that's the concrete evidence I have that he was pursuing these ideas uh, right up to then. Now he, he got, again, the, the general psychology text came out in 1935. And I don't know exactly what happened to the part two um, volume of Studien zur Personenwissenschaft. Maybe he, you know, he, he just found that the general psychology book was too large of a task. And then he, he put part two aside so he could do the general psychology book. And then he did that. So that's, that's speculation on my part. But I, I, I think it's, it may be the way it was. His life was in turmoil after 1933. He moved around. Uh, um, he, he, well, he, he maintained a residence in Hamburg because he couldn't get his pension, any sort of pension check unless he did. Even after he went to the States, he had to come back to Germany on a couple of occasions so that he could pick up because the, 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 the Nazi government would not send it to, to wherever he had gone in the States. So, um, but, but he, and, and as I told you, he was for a while in the Netherlands. Uh, so, um, he, you know, that, that disrupts a person's life and it's pretty hard to write and, and get any continuity going when you have all these, this, these disruptions in your life. So, um, but I think I'm, I'm, um, I did the, the book I, I've described to you with the translations and now I'm kind of trying to put together my ideas for prospectus for another book that would pursue the, the ideas of a critically personalistic psychology, but in my, in my words, not, not, not any more in translations from Stein. So we'll see, we'll see where that goes. I would, I, would, I would want them to appreciate the reality of uh, uh, psychodemography, I would like them to, 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 to grasp why it is that I say properly that work focused on variables with respect to which individuals have been differentiated, whether by tests or by experimental treatments, generates knowledge of populations and not knowledge of the individuals in the populations. I would like them to get that. I would like them to get that I appreciate that psychodemographic work has a value. There's a place for it. And it, that, that I would not want them to come away thinking that, that I'm just a, 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 a vicious critic of psychodemographic work. I'm not. I would like them to appreciate, thirdly, that while psychodemographic work has value, maybe this is a repetition of the first point, it's not psychology. It's not psychology, simply because it doesn't tell us anything about individuals. And I can't imagine a sensible scientific psychology that has nothing authoritative to say about the doings, the psychological doings, whatever, sensations, perceptions, judgments, cognitions, memories, development, all of it. 
of individuals. Like I just cannot imagine a psychology like that. Um, maybe that's a three-pronged one takeaway. Yeah. Uh, a second takeaway, and it's it's not so much a takeaway, but it's a reference and a go-to for those psychologists who who would respond to me as many have in the past by saying, well, okay, your argument's good, but what are we going to do instead? I wish for those who, who want to really have their hands in empirical and even quantitative work, if they would take my recommendation to go look at the work of James Grice. He's cited in the book and our, our work is not overlapping, but it is certainly uh, coordinated. It's, 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 it's hand in hand. And um, I, I say this because there are options out there. Um, one thing is to embrace more critically and, but appreciatively qualitative work. Uh, there's a need for qualitative work. But for those who just can't bring themselves to do that and they want something more quantitative and systematic that on its surface at least, it looks just like experimentation that they're used to, that they're familiar with. Random assignment of subjects to groups and all this. Much more attention to working out, the investigator working out in detail just what she or he theorizes is happening with his or her individual subjects as they go through these uh, experimental treatments and then analyzing the data in ways that address those questions. Are they going through those things? How many of them are? How many of them aren't? That, that's, that's a viable psychology in, in, in my view. And I want them, I would hope that um, in, in my, mainly from my last chapter, where you might pick up takeaway points, uh, that, that my views on this matter are, are, are made explicit. I, 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 I take an example of a research project that had to do with the Tulsa schools. And that project was done by people whom I know, colleagues and graduate students at Georgetown. Um, and I respect that work and I, I know those people and I respect those people and they're good people. And psychodemography is worth doing. And here's why. And here's what it looks like. And here's why it's not psychology. And now you want to do psychology, use psychodemography as a, as a, as a, as a springboard, if you will. Uh, you can see things in, in psychodemographic findings that raise hypotheses about psychological processes that you could then in turn investigate uh, in, in using different methods, methods suitable for psychological investigations. Um, um, that I'm not urging, I don't know how many points this is. <laughs> too, too many they are all important points, so I like what you're saying, <laughs> yes. I, I'm not. I'm not, in a sense, I'm not inventing a new psychology. When they say, well, you can't do psychology scientifically studying individuals. Again, I may have hit on this point last, last week. Really? What about what Wundt was doing? What about what Ebbinghaus was doing? And in your own textbooks, these people are held up as the pioneers of the discipline. So come on, folks, just look at your own history. You can see that that, 
It's not only can be done, it's the way it was done once upon a time. Um, yeah. Uh, and I hope I've been able to raise sensitivity to the fact, and I see it as a fact, that these issues have ethical implications as well as epistemic implications. When you're using tests to make decisions that are heavily influential on people's lives, uh, yet on the basis of, of claims to knowledge about those individuals that are not valid, I, this is not just this is not just getting it wrong in a scientific sense. You, you, you're doing things that it's, it seems to me are at least ethically questionable. I won't go so far as to call them unethical, but you're, 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 you, you have to see yourself as subscribing to an ethics that, that uh, um, um, is, is, is interested in, in what's best for the most in the long run, so to speak. It's, 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 not, uh, it's not scrupulously respectful of, of individuals. And, and so, okay, if you're gonna do that, it's not my ethics, but if you're gonna do that, at least be clear about it, be explicit about it. Yeah, um, I don't even think to, to, to get something out of that book, they wouldn't have that much to know about psychology, at least on the critical part, it's just, thinking about, and it's a tough nut, uh, statistics and probability. Um, those, that is language that is, is just about everywhere in contemporary discourse, about, about everything. And if, if, if in that domain of discourse, and I'm talking about probability, people can come to a, 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 a clearer appreciation of the difference between probabilistic knowledge and probabilistic beliefs um, that, that, that would be the main thing. And, and, and where one applies and, and the other doesn't and 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 vice versa um and boy nowadays with with covid being this and that and the other thing and you, you just every time I, I almost cringe when i hear people saying well my chance of getting covid is you know minuscule or whatever and um not really not really but I don't know, Roberto, what, what, how, like, well, <laughs> here I go again. Um, that's, that's a tough takeaway, I think, for, it's so common as part of the discourse in our society to take probabilistic knowledge that is irrevocably ir tied to populations and interpret it as if it were probabilistic knowledge about oneself or about the individual other person with whom one is concerned, instead of the basis for expressing a belief about oneself 
or, or about, about another. Um, when it's treated as knowledge, it, 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 it is seen to be given the stamp of scientific approval. And I, I think it, it, it's, um, I, I think we would have a better society hmm. if, if we were clearer on this distinction. But again, I don't know, for, for lay persons <laughs> to, to, come, to come away with that, that's a, that, that's a tall order. I, uh... Okay, so that was the last part of my conversation with Professor Jace Lamiel. I hope it was really interesting for you as it was for me. And as usual, if you want to hear the uncut version of our conversation with some more exchange between him and I, then you can just check the podcast. And if you want to read more about it, you can check my blog. And if you have already seen the videos, just keep checking because I will be putting up more videos about this topic or very related topics. So as you know, in this channel, we are about self-primacy, which is about behavioral science, which is about individuality. And that's what this interview was so valuable for. But anyway, please let me know what you think about this interview, about this three-part interview and about the book. If you have read already a bit about it, I will be happy to, to know what you think. And yeah, if you have any other ideas about interviews that you would like me to do or some topic that you would like me to address as a psychologist or, or just any interesting fact about ourselves and our identities and how we can improve ourselves, then just drop your ideas and I will be happy to address it. So, thank you for watching this video. Give me your like, give me your subscription, and I assure you that that will motivate me to keep working on this topic. So, see you later.